0: This is your host, Rachel Franklin, with Already Dead, a sexual assault discussion podcast. A quick PSA, as I just mentioned, we will be discussing topics surrounding sexual assault, so if you feel like you need a break at any time from listening, please take one. This is a space for healing, for learning, and for creating community. He didn't make me feel like I wanted to die, he just made me feel like I was already dead. So today I have with me Courtney Stallings. She is a professor at Pepperdine University, the assistant director of the student-produced media group Pepperdine Graphic Media, a freelance writer, and the author of the book Laura's Ghost, Women Speak About Twin Peaks, which we will get to in a bit. Uh, Courtney, would you mind sharing a little bit more about your background? Sure.
1: So um, again, my name is Courtney Stallings. and I teach at Pepperdine University. And I work with a student journalist, which is a huge passion of mine, really passionate about student journalism and the work they do. And I have a background in history and cultural studies, and I apply that to a lot of the academic works that I do, um, of course, in my journalism work. And I've also done some creative writing as well. Really passionate about
0: covering film and TV through the lens of cultural studies. Awesome. Um, What brought you to Pepperdine and to writing? Well, I was an
1: undergraduate here uh, back in the day, and I loved it so much that I came back and um, just really loved higher education. Uh, really liked working with um, young adults in in college, in college age, and I love writing and I love reading, and I love editing. And it was just a no brainer that I would want to support students who were also in that field and looking to either go into
0: journalism or some type of writing field. Awesome. Um, do you have any projects that you'd like to work on in the future or that you're working on now? Uh, yes, I'm
1: always working on some writing projects. I'm a freelance writer, and I've got um, a chapter for a book on David Lynch um, that's coming out probably sometime next year. Um, I have also want to publish some additional books, too. I have some additional books in the works that I'd like to do on film and TV. And, of course, I um, one of my goals is to publish a, a novel in the next five years. So... I'm um, looking forward to doing some creative writing, too.
0: What is your novel about?
1: Um, it is about the Los Angeles River, and it's a horror story uh, about environmentalism and sustainability, um, but, but through the lids of horror. Interesting.
0: Um, I recently just finished your book, and I'd love to talk to you about that in a minute, but first I wanted to just say thank you again for sharing your presentation and taking the time to speak with me now. Um, We met at that journalism conference where you spoke about interviewing and trauma, and I had seen your presentation on the subject the year prior, and it always stuck with me, but I had to make sure I saw you again, especially at the conference in person this time around. Um, I shared this with you before, but I experienced sexual assault between seeing your presentation for the first and second time, and the latter time your words just really meant so much more to me, even though they did more than the first time. So I just wanted to say thank you so much.
1: And I just, I want to say thank you for, for coming to my presentation, and I'm so sorry for what happened to you, and I am just, just devastated to hear that that happened to you and is still happening, and um, I'm really glad that you trust me to talk to me and interview me, and um, just want to say what a pleasure it was meeting you and talking with you at the conference.
0: I, I really appreciated meeting you, too. You're very, very easy to talk to. Um... You never really fully understand uh, sexual assault until you've been through it. Something I'd really like to accomplish with this pos- this podcast is, of course, creating a space for healing and finding community with others that have been through sil- similar experiences. But I'd really also like to be able to show those that have fortunately never experienced something like that or those that have loved ones dealing with the aftermath of sexual assault or abuse. I just want to help them understand what we're going through and how our trauma affects us, how they can support us and help address this problem. Um So let's talk about your book. Would you mind briefly sharing what it's about and about some of the more influential people that you interviewed? Sure. So
1: um, I wrote a book called uh, Laura's Ghost, Women Speak About Twin Peaks. It came out in 2020. And I am a huge uh, fan of the show Twin Peaks and the film Fire Walk With Me. And I watched it when it originally aired in the early 90s and especially the movie. And I was really struck as a young girl who um, was a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and an assault as well, that this um, story of Laura Palmer, the main character who was abused and went through so much, but was a really complex, you know, interesting, fascinating woman, um, that this topic was explored, sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse, and the fact that this was um, not just about the perpetrator, but the story really explores her and the complexity of her. And she's this really strong person. I think a lot of times in the past, we would through victim blaming, we would sort of, you know, blame the victim or um, paint the victim as weak. And she was none of those things. Um, what happened to her was not her fault. Mm-hmm. And that was a really powerful thing to see when you're young, and especially in the early 90s. That just We just weren't having those kind of stories then. And um, so a few years back, I wanted to write about Twin Peaks, and this idea of Laura's ghost came to me, this idea of how this character still haunts us, you know, in many ways. Mm -hmm. And I knew other women specifically, but I also talked to men, non-binary people, about how um, this character had really affected them, especially as survivors. And so I decided to write this book, and I didn't know exactly where it was going to take me. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to interview people who were affected by it. Um, I also knew I wanted to interview the cast who was a part of it. So I interviewed the cast sort of that surrounded Laura Palmer. So I interviewed Cheryl Lee, who played Laura Palmer— uh, Grace Abriski, who played Laura Palmer's mother, Sarah Palmer. Um, I interviewed Jennifer Lynch, who um, was the who wrote David Lynch's the director's daughter, who wrote the book, um, the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, that really kind of um, showed in a lot of ways the the backstory of Laura Palmer as a young young girl. And then I also interviewed Sabrina Sutherland, who's worked with David Lynch for years, and she's a producer and kind of does the business side and um had worked with Cheryl Lee quite a bit, too, because in my mind, these um, women had created this character, helped create this character. And so I wanted their insight into it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I also
1: just interviewed a lot of fans and people in the fan community who were doing interesting, creative things to to find out how did this character affect you? What does she mean to you?
0: I really appreciated the different voices that you brought into your book. Um, the compilation of interviews provided so many unique but like unifying perspectives. How many people did you interview and how did you decide who you wanted to interview?
1: I think I interviewed twenty six people and I I knew that I wanted to interview women. Um I I knew this was going to be limiting to interviewing women because I have I've had a lot of uh, men come up to me too and say this character has a but um but I think you know, this is a very personal book in a lot of ways and so I knew I wanted to get women's voices in there. Laura Palmer is a woman. Um, and uh, choosing who to interview was really really difficult because i at some point i had to cut myself off because i could have i mean there's so many incredible people that i could have interviewed um but i interviewed people that i had proximity to in the sense that i had knew them online or had met them at festivals i knew they really were into twin peaks and i tried to pick women who were doing something creative as well um you know who were really involved in the creative process whether it was directly with the twin peaks or in some other way, kind of related to it, um, I wanted to I wanted to show the full, holistic, complexity of the women that that, you know, even if they talked about trauma, that it wasn't just about that. It was, you know, they're doing all these great, interesting things, and they're they're complex people. They're not just defined by what happened to them.
0: All of the voices in your book are women, um, as you just mentioned. Uh, why was that important to you? I also noticed that you asked a lot of questions about being a woman in different industries. Why was that important to you? I
1: think, you know, as as going into my 40s, I was coming to terms with a lot of things that I had gone through in my life, um, including sexual abuse, including sexual assault, including just being a woman in the workplace too. Um, and some of the things I was th- thinking about was, the you know, the way that you're treated when people view you as a woman. And, um, and how difficult that is. And then you add another layer on top of that. If you're a woman of color or if you're specifically a black woman too, it just becomes more and more difficult, no matter how good you are to overcome how people see you, whether it's weak or not as qualified or, you know, all of these things, you have to try harder and harder. And, uh, and so I think about Laura Palmer that way too. I mean, you know, if you look at her character, she was tutoring people, she was working for Meals and Wheels. She was, I mean, she was doing all the stuff for the community, giving back, yet she was being abused and met self medicating through that, but mm-hmm. still getting up every day and doing it. And um and I was thinking about, you know, what women go through and, and how we have to self medicate. Maybe it's not through drugs, but it's some other way to kind of steal ourselves to the world. Um, and how difficult it can be to navigate the, the world as a woman. And this was my own perspective and this was a very personal book in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm think that's why it was important to me. It was like, well, let's see what other, you know, this is my experience, my background. Let's see what other women think about this.
0: Why did you decide to write this book when you did? What pushed you to finish it? And who did you write it for?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I I came up with the idea in 2016. And it was really interesting because this is before the resurgence of the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that happened in 2017 in a big way. But I feel like there was something in the air at the time, you know, something in the zeitgeist that was really, you know, people who were survivors and, you know, specifically women and others who were kind of pushing um, for more discussions about this and more change regarding um, sexual assault. And uh, and so I, um, I, that was kind of in the back of my mind is this character of Laura Palmer. Twin Peaks for me always was about Laura Palmer and I think the thing that we don't we didn't always talk about was the fact of the sexual abuse because it was uncomfortable to talk about in the show for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I was like, I, I need to write this book for me. I mean, it was one of those books that kept nagging at me and I didn't have time to write a book. I had so much going on, but it kept nagging at me. And it's almost I mean, this sounds crazy because so many people say this, but the book wouldn't let me go. You know, it kept mm-hmm. saying, write me, write me. And uh, so I finally decided to do it. And when I first started doing it, I wasn't even really thinking of my readership. I was really doing it for myself, and I was hoping maybe a few Twin Peaks people might read it. But I had no idea what it would become and how it would how it would you know cross um, such boundaries and um, and people would get it too. you know. When you write a book like this, it's a little bit different, and I was experimenting. And I did not know if people were going to be receptive to it or not. You know, you're, you're your own worst critic as a, as a writer. So right. I didn't know that if, if people would be receptive. And, um, and so, yeah, I continued working on it, published it in 2020. It took me a little while to get, get it done. Um, published it in the middle of, of the, the, the pandemic year of 2020, which was a wild time to publish anything. Um, but I'm really glad I got it out there. It was a very healing process for me.
0: A few of the responses the woman gave you really resonated with me, and I'd love to dive into those topics more with you. Um, Toward the beginning of your book, Jennifer Lynch talked about how making things okay is done to women. She talks about the character Laura Palmer, not her abuser or anyone else. She had to do the work by herself to pretend to make things okay. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... um... I think that that happens with victims, you know, and I think that happens with women is we have to we have to make everything okay. No one else is going to be there for us or help us. Um, one of the things that I explored in the end of my book when I was reflecting on my own abuse was not just that I had been abused, but that at multiple levels people didn't believe me, um, even when I did talk about it, even when I did, you know, try to report things as a child and even as an adult. And I think that is the, That's the thing that I, when I emerged in this book, that's the thing that made me the angriest was, Mm -hmm. of course, the abuse made me angry, but the fact that people didn't take it seriously, people didn't listen, people didn't want to deal with it. And I've seen that in so many other contexts, too, with other people. Um, And I think women have to take on, and, you know, survivors have to take on so much, um, and they don't get the support, and they're not believed. And that is the thing that breaks my heart.
0: I'm very sorry that happened to you, too. That is awful. Um, and it's so frustrating to hear that. nobody was believing you about that, yeah, um, yeah, um, another interview that really struck me was with Francine the lucid dream burlesque performer um she talked about how, even if you've been through an experience of sexual assault, and I'm quoting here, it doesn't mean that you can no longer be sexy or sexual it just it's just another thing that adds to your experience as a woman. What are your thoughts on exploring sexuality after sexual abuse or assault? I mean, I think she is
1: spot on. Um, You know, I I think sexuality is about empowerment of the individual. And, you know, people think people equate sexuality or sex with uh, sexual assault or violence. That sexual assault is violence. It's not about sexual empowerment. It's not about feeling safe it's not about any of those things it's not sex in the way that it should be um it is you know it's an act of violence but a woman especially after a sexual assault being able to empower herself or anybody being able to empower themselves with sexuality consensual sex that's very very positive and very very empowering
0: i love that one of the one of my favorite things to that i've heard um some saying is uh there's no such thing as non-consensual sex. There's either rape or sex. Because um, it's, it's completely not a sexual act. It is a it is an act of violence. Um, Absolutely. Going off of that, later in your book, Laura Stewart talks about the prequel movie to Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, which, from what I have gathered, directly explores the abu- se- uh, sexual abuse and incest that the character of Laura Palmer's father forces on her. I'm going to quote something she said because I just felt it was so powerful. You feel self-hatred and blame yourself, and then you become promiscuous, almost as self-punishment, because even though you haven't done anything wrong, you feel dirty or think, I may as well just let everyone do this to me now. Have you experienced some form of this, and what can you say to someone in that stage of stage of self-hatred, and is it just a stage?
1: Yeah, I mean, people act out in different ways after this, you know, after this happens to you. And sometimes it's acting out through, through sex. And I think there's a difference between acting out because you're in pain or because you think less of yourself versus having a positive sex or sexual relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's nothing wrong with with sex workers or any of that kind of stuff. But Laura Palmer was absolutely acting out and hurting um, through drugs and through sex as a way to self-medicate, as a way to deal with what had happened to her. Um, I had read this psychology article that, talked about how people often continue to act out their trauma. They don't even realize it. They continue to act it out and often they get into abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's our sexual relationships with other people. Um, and it's not something, you know, I have been in abusive relationships, but I have not, I don't think I've acted out through sex in that way. I think I probably withheld it in many ways, especially when I was younger because, um, I needed that control. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was another way for me to deal with it. Um, but I think, you know, I think be, people have different reactions to what happens to them, and some of that involves acting out in those ways.
0: Yeah, everyone definitely deals with it in a different way. Um, that was a really interesting point you brought up about the psychology article.
1: Mm. Uh,
0: Geneva Rougier touched on something similar when discussing domestic violence in your interview with her. Um, I read this section multiple times. She said it is... It almost felt like an embarrassment for the people who are being abused. They want to hide the black eyes. They want to hide the bruises. They feel like it is almost their own fault when it's not. A lot of times outsiders will say, well, why don't you just leave? Why are you putting up with this? I can't speak for anybody else, but being an immigrant, having no family, being in a new country, and I mean having to plan your escape. I'm talking about years of putting aside $10, $20 every week for years and years and years until you have enough. I had to reread that. Um... That's incredible. That comment about outsiders commenting stuck with me because, like we talked about earlier, you don't know unless you've been through it. Um, a lot of the men in my life seem to pose similar questions, not in a, a negative way, but they really just don't understand because they're not women and they haven't been through it. Not to say some men don't experience similar trauma, but most. Um, what can women do to help men understand that thought process of survival?
1: There's this quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but I keep thinking about this and brought up the past few years. I've seen it on Twitter and it's, um, I I might get it wrong, but it's something to the effect of like, you know, men are afraid of being embarrassed. Women are afraid of getting killed, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think of that quote a lot because I don't think that men, a lot of men understand that the, the violence that women face every single day. And I am still coming to terms with violence in even smaller ways that I grew up with. And so, um, you know, there are certain places I don't, even now, I don't go or I don't run or I don't exercise or I don't, you know, because of what might happen to me. Right. And I certainly experienced that as a, as a younger woman, too. Stalking from strangers, things like to across the street, keep my keys in my hand mm-hmm. in case someone attacked me. We live in fear all the time, but we're so used to it. It's like ingrained in us because... And we're warned, too. Like, I, you know, my mother warned me, don't go do this, don't go that. If I was right. a boy, she wouldn't have warned me of the same things. And um, so I've lived with that my whole life and sometimes not even aware of, like, that living in fear. You just do it. Right. And I think that's one of the things I'd like to explain to to men or other people who don't really understand that we're confronted with violence all the time. Um, and so when you're in a situation, when you're in your home and there's violence, how, how do you get away from that? You know, even if you do have resources, and Geneva didn't, her family didn't, they didn't have any connections, she was an immigrant, um, the father purposely kept them isolated and financially dependent as right. a way to control them, and was very charismatic outside of the home. You would have never known that he was this other person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I don't think people would have believed them anyway. And I've heard of instances of, you know, women who are being abused, going to the police, and the police not necessarily believing them or looking into it but not really doing anything. Um and it's I think it's very, very difficult. And I think it's I think it's, you know, people should really check themselves before they, they judge people in these situations because um there's always a threat of violence. There's emotional control, physical control, financial control and no one can say what they would do unless they're in that situation.
0: Yeah. Um one of my favorite lines even from my own parents is like you're not a boy; it's different. Um, mm-hmm. Like you can't, you can't go to these certain places. You can't be out at this hour. Um, I really don't think boys or men ex- have ever really experienced something like that. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen the show Made on Netflix, but it's about a mom that takes her kid and leaves in the middle of the night because of her boyfriend's domestic abuse. And throughout the season, her dollar count constantly appears on the screen. It's practically never over ten dollars. Um, she stays at women's shelters and she lives out of friends' houses. She and her daughter are homeless at one point, and a court even decides that her kid legally must stay with the abusive father for a period of time. What can we as a society do to help women get out of these situations sooner and with more support?
1: Yeah, I have not seen I made, but I've heard really good things about it. Um, I think that's a powerful story to tell because you know people people see something that's fiction and see something like that and go, oh, there are really women like this. What can we do to help? Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think there needs to be more government help. Um, I think there needs to be more in in place to um, support these women on many different levels. First of all is safety. Make sure that they're safe. Make sure that they have a way to get out of the house and they're safe immediately. The next is financial support, helping them immediately get financial support Um, in their family. And the next is stability, maybe relocation, you know, so that they're away from their abuser. Um, And the laws need to change, too, with restraining orders Mm -hmm. and with um, statute of limitations and with helping people um, get away from these violent offenders and doing something to these perpetrators, too, um, making sure they're they're held accountable um, so that they won't continue to perpetuate the abuse, either to the original victim or to somebody new
0: yeah something i that really was brought to attention from my, your book for me was uh the restraining orders not really being something that was beneficial to a certain extent because so what they have a restraining order they can still come and there's always a chance that like the police can't protect you in that sense, yeah, yeah, and
1: Amy Harwick, who was the mm-hmm. And a, you know, famous um, psychologist, she'd been engaged to Drew Carey. She was murdered by an ex who had been stalking her for years, and she did everything right. She told her friends, something happens to me, it's him. She filed so many restraining orders, went to the police, um, and still it happened. And uh, and so there, there was not the consequences that, that should have been. And he was very abusive when they were in a relationship, and she did manage to get out. But even many years later, he was still a predator
0: with her. Right. I hope to see that change. Um, yeah. Laura Stewart and Grace Sabrisky also talked about how the character of Laura Palmer's mother ignores the abuse occurring in front of her. Are witnesses victims of trauma and abuse as well? Or are they almost just as bad as the abuser for not interviewing, or sorry, intervening or speaking up?
1: Yeah, I had a really interesting conversation with Grace Sabrisky because I always thought that Laura Palmer's mother... Um, was, was a victim in the situation. You know, She had been drugged by her husband and um, when he, so he could commit the abuse against his daughter. And um, so we had a really frank conversation that ended up including in the book about that. And she really challenged me on it. And I think it was good that she challenged me on it. Um, I think they can be both. I think they can be both a victim in the situation because they are also being manipulated, controlled. And Sarah Palmer's case, she was drugged. Um, but I think they can also be was called a a bystander of the abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Sarah Palmer on some level knew something was happening. Um, I don't know how much she knew, but a mother really knows what's going on with her daughter and and in the house. And she should have done more. I mean, the number one thing as a parent you're supposed to do is protect your child. And she didn't do enough to do that, even though she was being controlled as well. And so I think you can be both. I think that, um, you know, someone like Sarah Palmer is going to have to deal with, that the rest of her life, especially because her, her daughter was killed. Um, you know, what could I have done? I should have done something. Is there forgiveness for those people? Forgiveness is a tricky thing for me. Um, I, you know, I'm a Christian and I, I work at a Christian university mm-hmm. and my whole life I have been taught forgiveness. Um, but I think women are often, you um, encouraged or told to forgive very easily to perpetrators. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is up to the individual, and I think it's okay not to forgive. Um, And this might be controversial in some parts of, you know, uh, Christianity, but I think it's okay not to forgive. I think depending on what forgiveness means to you and what it's going to mean for you, um, I don't think you need to let someone off the hook through forgiveness. And what I've heard actually through, I have a friend who's Jewish, and she was talking about um, in Judaism, it's forgiveness is a two-way street. You have to have somebody reaching out to you and, and truly wanting to be forgiven, truly um, sorry for what they did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the other person meets them halfway. And I really like that idea of it too. Um, and it doesn't have to happen. Uh, but I was like, that makes sense. it's a two-way street. but I think um, I don't think people necessarily need to forgive. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if it if it diminishes what happened to you or diminishes your empowerment, I don't think you're required to do that. I think that's okay.
0: One of my favorite sayings is um, forgive, but never forget. Um, mm-hmm. Always keep that in the back of your head. If they did that. They could still do that again. Um, but something, I'm Catholic, so something I really appreciate about that is I always felt that. People needed to really feel sorry in order to be forgiven as well. Something I was taught growing up was like going to confession, for example, um, talking to the priest. You had to really be sorry in what you were saying and actually mean what you were saying in order for God to forgive you. Um, so that I I do appreciate that two way comment. That was really something that I personally understand. Um, and then. Another quote I found powerful was from, i forgive me if I pronounce her name wrong, Sazine Kohler. Is that how you pronounce it? She talks about the abuser in Twin Peaks or Bob. She said, there are so many Bobs in the community. These are the people who have their families in their profile picture. How does that type of abuse go unnoticed? I think that um, predators are very good at
1: hiding that side of themselves. They're... Very intelligent. Um, They are very good at having kind of two faces, you know, one face for the outward community, one for the the inward community. Um, There was a really incredible documentary recently um, on Bill Cosby. And Bill Cosby was, for my generation, um, very beloved. Right. Very kind, you know, had worked on children's shows, had worked on the Cosby show, was sort of a moral authority in a lot of ways had done a lot of great things for the black community. Um, but behind the scenes, he was raping and assaulting women. And um, and so many, I mean, not just one or two, but like there's so many women who came forward. And those are the ones who came forward. There's so many that I'm sure right. haven't. Um, serial rapist, serial predator. And it was so hard for many of us when we found this out to reconcile who's the guy with the family at home and the kids and, and you know, um, eating putting pops on commercials and, you know, the dad of the Cosby show, he was all of our dad it was really difficult to reconcile how can this guy who's so amazing be this other predator? And I think that happens. I think it's very difficult for people to understand. You know, we think we can get a sense of somebody and we can know people, um, but, but we don't always do, you know, and I think that's another level of why predators take advantage of that kind of stuff too. You know, there's a, a certain element of, of Cosby and others who, um, you know, it's very powerful having this one image out in the world because people don't question it. People don't question it. When someone blames you for something, they're like, Bill Cosby could never do this. Right. And uh, and that's Laura Palmer's father, too, this charismatic guy who um, the community loved. And, you know, how could this loving father do this to his daughter? I think it would be, I think it's very difficult for people to, to reconcile that.
0: Yeah. Even with, like, friends and people around you, if they know this person that is an abuser in a certain way that's not an abusive relationship, they have a difficult time understanding how there's two sides to people. And honestly, I have a difficult time understanding that as well. I don't know how you could be so outwardly an affectionate person and then behind closed doors so horrible. Um, That's something I struggle to understand. I remember my grandparents had just gone to see Bill Cosby show like like, a month before all this came out, um, so, I, yeah, that really resonates with me, too, (laughs) that was kind of a crazy thing, but it's, it happens, and people need to be open to the idea of not everybody is one way, that they, yeah, absolutely, appear, um, in your conversation with Cheryl Lee, you both talked about how someone could have reached out to Laura and asked if she was okay. Obviously, that's the first step, but is that really enough? What What else can outsiders do to help people struggling?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, because people could ask if you're okay, and then you might say, sure, you know, I'm fine, like right. everybody does, because um, you don't want to get into it or you don't trust them. Um yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really tough question. I think, you know, one of the things I think about is the, the doctor in the town. Um, I feel like he knew Laura since she was a child. He should have noticed or said something. And I think, I think people and teachers and people in the medical profession, they see and notice a lot. And I think they're the ones that could step in and maybe call, call Child Protective Services or call the police um, to investigate and so I think it's really about people who interact with children, interact with it, and others um, in a professional way who are able to, you know, first of all, know the signs,
0: you know, mm-hmm. know what
1: you're trying to look for. There were so many signs I had as a child, and I even saw a psychologist, um, and they just didn't look for those signs. They didn't question it. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think more intervention from professors, doctors, or teachers and doctors, doctors. Uh, would be a good way, you know, on um, saying something is not going on here. Let's investigate. Let's truly investigate.
0: Yeah. Um, and so Kohler also talked about how she watched Firewalk with Me, the prequel movie that dives into ancestral abuse, and how she cried through the whole movie when she watched it back after she had been assaulted. Sometimes addressing these topics can be so healing, and other times it can trigger you and op- reopen so many wounds. How do you walk that line?
1: That's really difficult. It's difficult for me. Um, I I will say that I have watched Firewalk with me many times. And when the third season of Twin Peaks came back in 2017, there was a lot of events um, surrounding that. And, you know, and a lot of the events I went to were showing that film. I've seen the film many times, but there was some time. I mean, there was one in 2017. I remember I was going to David Lynch's Festival of Disruption in Los Angeles. And I told my husband, I was like, I can't watch Firewalk with me. I just, can't, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. I don't have it in me to watch it. And he was like, yeah, that's fine. So we showed up and, um, we were outside the theater cause it was this big theater and there was a lot of other stuff going on and I could hear inside the theater, the, the rape scene. And I, we just showed up for that. And I wasn't even in there, but I could hear it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we need to leave right now. I can't, I can't watch this right now. Um, and so I think you need to understand that, or people need to understand that, um, it's okay if you're in the middle of something to just leave or walk away and that's perfectly fine. I mean, I've seen that movie a million times and sometimes it doesn't bother me and sometimes I'm just not in a place where it's okay um, to watch it. And I've found that with other things too. Sometimes I'm okay. You know, one of the things I I maybe I'm, I might different from a, I'm probably different from a lot of people, but I know there's this idea among some people that, um, you know, we shouldn't have sexual assault or rape and film and TV. Um, and I understand that to a certain extent because sometimes it's, it's gratuitous or it's problematic, you know, all of those things. Yeah. Um, but I think we should never shy away from violence. And uh, you know, and, and sometimes this is an unpopular opinion uh, for, pe- for people, for people who are survivors. Um, but I think sometimes we need to show that violence, not just to survivors, they've experienced it, but to people right. who haven't to show people, this is, this is not what you think it is. This is an act of violence. It's not an act of
0: sex. Right. Um, Something I noticed with a lot of different TV shows is, uh, like, there are certain shows that make an effort to point out what is wrong with sexual violence, and there's other shows that glamorize it. Hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think it's about intention and
1: about what you're trying to accomplish through the act of violence. Um, I'm a big fan of horror movies, you know, where there's violence and. Um, I think violence can be cathartic depending on the story that's being told and the intentionality of the story that's being told. It can be informative. Um, It can get a strong reaction out of you. And so I think if you're going to include a scene of violence, a scene of rape, you have to really think about why that scene is there, why it's important, how your audience is going to react to it. And is it gratuitous? What, what is it here for? What are we doing with this scene? I mm-hmm. think writers and directors, and filmmakers, actors really need to think about that and really question it.
0: Cazine Collar um, also mentioned an article she'd read about male college students that obliviously committed unconsensual sexual acts. A lot of men committed sexual assault without realizing it. The trauma they caused is obviously very real, but their intentions may not have been in the wrong place this is something that I often feel conflicted with thinking about myself. Uh, maybe he didn't realize what he was doing wrong. Maybe that may, maybe that makes it okay. Does that make me okay? You work on a college campus. How does that make you feel or think?
1: Um, I am never in favor of of blaming the victim or um, minimizing what the perpetrator does. I mean, we we talk about consent more than we ever have. When I was growing up. Um, and not that, not that everybody gets the same message. Um, but I don't think it should be, con- I don't think it should be excused. Now, mm-hmm. should we be talking to men and others about how they treat people and women? Absolutely. We should continue that conversation and we should maybe m- model or show what consent looks like, you know, and maybe we need consent multiple times throughout. I was reading, um, I was getting on our campus Yik-Yak the other day to see what, there were some things going on. I want to see what the students were saying and They were talking about sexual assault and one of the students anonymously said, I really want to thank this one guy I hooked up with who asked and he knew I was a survivor and he asked me for consent over and over again to to the point where it was annoying to her. Mm -hmm. But she said she really appreciated it because every step of the way he was making sure that she was okay. And I think that is the stuff that we need to educate people on and and model it like every step of the way because no means no, no, no matter where you are in the process. No means no, you know. Right. And I don't buy that people can't control themselves or that men are different that way. You know, we're all sexual beings. We all can control ourselves. And um no means no. And so I think it's about educating and modeling for, for men specifically, but I'm not going to let them off the hook.
0: Yeah. Um I appreciate that response. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh Basically... A lot of the time, I think I hear that, I hear from a lot of other people, oh, but if I ask over and over again, like you said, it's annoying, it um, it ruins the mood. Does it really ruin the mood? I don't think so. No.
1: And I think there's a way you can do it, too, that's not going to... That's not going to ruin the mood. I think that's why we need to have more conversations. People are so uncomfortable. You know, and I'm on a Christian campus, too, so we're really uncomfortable here. Yeah. People are so uncomfortable about having these conversations, and we're so uncomfortable talking about our bodies. And we need to have sex ed throughout life and talk about these things throughout life mm-hmm. um, from when we're very young. And it'll be different when you're young, how you talk about your body and everything, to when you're you know, even in college age. Um, even me as in, a woman in my 40s, I'm still learning about what my body does and works and how it functions. And I'm like, I wish I'd learned about this earlier. Um, and uh, and so I think, I, I, yeah, I think that this is something that, you know, um, ru- ruining the mood. I mean, if you really, really want to talk about ruining the mood, it's when you do something without consent, you right. know. So I think it's much better to, to play it safe. Um, and I think there's ways you can do it. And I think it's fine. I hope it becomes the norm.
0: I agree. Um, one comment in your book that struck me was about haunting being both positive and negative. What is your experience with that? Can you describe that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I almost think of it like, um, you know, people are, there. there's good ghosts, and there's, you know, scary ghosts. And I think, you know, for Laura Palmer, for me, and one way that she haunts me is she's this, you know, victim of sexual violence and murder. And that's, that's one of the ways that she, she haunts me because I know that there's so many women who've experienced that violence. Um, and the other way that she haunts me in a good way is that she, you know, she was the first portrayal that I remember really seeing, um, entertainment that was, she was a complex person and we got really got to know who she was. And she, she wasn't just what happened to her. She was all these other things. And if, if that could happen to Laura Palmer, it could happen to anyone. You mm-hmm. know? Cause she, was, she was strong. She was powerful. Um, she would fight back. You know. Um, and so to me, I think that's a positive you know, reminder of, like, look at this incredible woman. As a young woman, she's showing this, this person to me and making me feel like, hey, I can be powerful in all these things. I'm not defined by what happened to me. I'm not just a victim.
0: I find that people I've left in my past still haunt me sometimes. Do you think that ghosts can be living?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I still think about last night. I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought about something that, and it wasn't even a huge thing, something that had happened to me when I was in college and it made me angry. Yeah. And I was like, that happened so long ago and that person is not even in my life anymore. And it still makes me angry. And then I got angry because I was angry, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, <laughs> I thought, why am I, why is this popping into my head all, this, all these years later? Um, so absolutely, I think, you know, people, people can haunt you in good ways and bad ways too and, and stay with you, um, particularly people who hurt you.
0: Right. Um, you mentioned at the end of your book a bit about your experience with sexual abuse, but you noted that a lot of people in your life don't know about what happened to you. Is that still true even after publishing your book?
1: it's still true. Um, most of my, uh, my, both my parents know when I told them they never spoke about it again because it just was too much for them. Um, but most of my other family does not know, um, it, you know, growing up, it was very uncomfortable to talk about and people were weird about it. And so I, and they didn't, some people didn't believe me. And so I just stopped talking about it. And so this was a way for me to, you know, it's funny that I can't tell my family and some of my close friends, but I can publish a book and put it out there, Mm -hmm. you know, for, I could talk to you about it. Um, And that has been very healing for me. It's like, here, I'm putting it out there. It's no longer just inside me and um, people can take it how they take it. But yeah, it's still very uncomfortable for me to, to tell people very close to me.
0: I experienced that too. Um, Would you be bothered if they had read your book, found out about this stuff?
1: I wouldn't be bothered. You know, because I think I have a lot of control having published a book on what I right. say and what I don't say. And I really went through a lot of, you know, thinking about how much do I want to put in there? Do I want to put, you know, extent of my abuse, who, who my abuse or what do I want? And then um I, I didn't. I was very cautious. I just didn't feel like going into it. And um And so I'm, I'm, and I knew when I put the book out, I was like, I need to be prepared once I publish this, that anybody can read it. Family, anybody can read it. Mm -hmm. And I need to be okay with that. So I was, I was ready. I was ready for anybody to read it.
0: I respect that you put up those boundaries for yourself. Um, Going into making this podcast, I personally felt like I had to share my story with those closest to me first. Um, Obviously, some of the people in your life know about your experiences. But what's that like to share something with the world, but not with the majority of people in your personal life?
1: Um, it's, it's actually been better in a lot of ways. It's been, I mean, it sounds strange, but, um, I have connected with strangers mm-hmm. over this book, um, in a way that I can't connect with my family. Uh, and that's the dynamic of my family too, families have all sorts of dynamics and, yeah. um, g- different generations also have more difficulty talking about these kind of things because it was taboo or we didn't talk about them or we just tried to move on from them. Um, and so and so it's a lot of baggage when you talk to your family about this kind of stuff um but i but you know people who read the book are generally interested in this topic or interested in twin peaks or if they're coming to talk to you um they are either a survivor or really responsive to the survivors in the book and so um those can be really genuinely wonderful conversations because people share what happened to them which it's awful what happened to them but i absolutely love that we're talking about it because I grew up in a time when we didn't talk about it at all. You didn't talk about it. You didn't tell anyone you didn't do anything. And so I think the more that we talk about it, the more healing it is and hopefully the more people will feel comfortable reporting it and pushing the legal system, the system in schools to take this seriously.
0: Yeah. Um, Like I mentioned, I personally felt like I had to tell my family about my experience before starting this podcast. Um, Some of those conversations were more difficult than others. The last person I told was my dad, and I actually only told him yesterday. Um, was it more difficult for you to share your story with specific people? And obviously you mentioned that it was in some sense. Uh, why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, the most um, difficult one was my parents. And I, after my first year after college, I had um, a panic attack. And I never had one, and we didn't talk about them growing up. So I thought I was literally dying. Mm-hmm. And um, my heart was racing. I just ran outside. I couldn't even go inside. And so I started seeing a psychologist, and so the abuse started coming up, and, um, and she suggested I talk to my parents. I brought my parents in. I was totally nervous, told them, and my dad's like, oh, that didn't happen. That was just his first reaction. I think because he was, like, freaked out by it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we never talked about it again. My parents never mentioned it again. Um, and uh, I think it was just too difficult for them to and, – and part of the, my fear, I don't, I don't know how you felt, but part of my fear in telling them was, I didn't want to make them feel guilty or bad that they couldn't protect me or, you know, be there for me. Um, and so that was part of the, the difficulty in telling them. But I, I am so amazed and proud of you for telling your family because I know that was so difficult for me, and I did it when I was in college. Um, and I hope you got a good reaction from them. I hope you had a positive reaction.
0: Thank you. Um, I'm sorry that they didn't have the best reaction Uh support from the people around you is very important and I hope that there's other people in your life that are much more supportive than that.
1: Oh, there are. And, you know, with my parents too, I mean, one of the things I've recognized over time is they're from a very different generation Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, they're from a generation where you just didn't talk about these kind of things and you didn't know how to talk about it. And so I think the more that, I mean, that's my whole thing is the more we talk about it, the better because then it won't be this, oh, my gosh, you know, I can't say anything, I can't do anything, I don't know what to do, um, that hopefully they'll have the words or the resources to help somebody. Right.
0: Um, you also talked about Twin Peaks and specifically Fire Walk With Me and how that was one of the first time the media explored childhood sexual assault or incest. Twin Peaks and the character of Laura Palmer obviously meant a lot to you considering you wrote a whole book about it. Um are there any other films or TV shows now that resonate with you in a similar way? Hmm, I'm sure there's a lot, actually. Um,
1: there was one that I mentioned in my book that was in uh, my interview with um, uh, Willow Caitlin McLay mm-hmm. that is uh, called The Tale that came out a few years ago on HBO starring Laura Dern. And I don't know how many people watched this because it was a very difficult um, show to watch. But it was about... So based on a real uh, filmmaker, a real director who was abused by a coach when she was young. And um, it starts out where she's remembering this affair she had. You know, she calls it an affair. And she sees herself as like a 13-year-old and then or 14-year-old. And then she's like, wait, I was younger. I was like 10 or 11. And then all of a sudden, the 13-, 14-year-old dissolves into a 10-year-old. And you see even the difference between someone who she, – she was a child. She was literally a child, right. you know, um, not developed or anything, a child. And then it her – her memory is coming to terms with this abuse that happened and the way that he groomed her. Um, and it's a very, very difficult film to watch. But and my even my friend's like, you're, you may not be able to watch this film. It's so difficult, but I watched the film. And again, this filmmaker is making the film about herself too. So I think there was like a, there was a care that was taken to it, you know, with it. Right. And, um, and it was very, it's like a movie I may never watch again because it's so difficult, but it did such a good job of showing how, memory is very faulty because you're, you know, the way that she remembered it was she was like, I had an affair with this coach. You know, she kind of romanticized it. And then when she really started digging in, she was like, no, no, I was a child and here's the way that he groomed me. And I think people don't understand that about abuse in general, but especially with children is the way that an adult um, takes those steps to make you feel safe
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and sometimes to threaten your family um, in order to groom you so that they can commit the abuse. And so that one I thought was, like, this is a really powerful story about abuse that people need to watch so that they can understand why and how this happens to children.
0: At the end of your book, you talked about reporting your abuser to the police. That takes a lot of strength. And if you're comfortable, would you mind telling me a little bit about that experience?
1: Yes. Um, So I, I had additional panic attacks after college. And I think it's because I had, you know, I had all this unfinished business um, with dealing with the abuse and it takes a long time and healing is not something that happens overnight and I definitely needed therapy. I needed to do something. And um, somebody had recommended, you know, why don't you report your abuser? And so I looked and the statute of limitations had run out. um, So it wasn't going to do anything, but they said, you know, go ahead and just put it on file anyway. Cause then even if they can't do anything for your case, if the name comes up for somebody else, They'll already have somebody on file. So I was like, okay, that's something I can do. Got it. It's not going to affect change right now, but it but it might help. And so it was a really big deal. And and I will tell you, dealing with the police, they, they are not interested. They, they are not sympathetic. They're not, you know, they're just, it's a desk job mm-hmm. um, trying to do this stuff. So that was really difficult. But I was like, just do it. It doesn't matter how you're treated. Just do it. Yeah. Um, So i did because i don't want to file more paperwork you know um so i did it and it was difficult to do it for a variety of reasons but i felt relief immediately after doing it i felt like i had done something even though i knew it was going to affect this big change i felt really good about it and it was very an important part of my healing process
0: the last thing i'd like to talk about i remember you quoted roxanne gay when you talked about this during your presentation I saw her speak a few years back at the Festival of Books at USC and listened to her share her story. Um, It was gruesome, completely awful. As you quoted, she said that she preferred the word victim to survivor because survivor is almost diminished everything that happened to her. I don't know if you've noticed, but I haven't really used the word survivor victim during our conversation. I'm not sure if I like either. Um, I think this is something that happened to me. It's something that affects me, but it's not me. What do those words mean to you? Yeah, I
1: think I think everybody needs to define for themselves what they are. And that may change, and that's fine, too. Um, I use both interchangeably for myself. I think I am a victim of what happened to me. Somebody, you know, targeted me. Um, but I think I'm also a survivor in a lot of ways, too, in the sense that, like, I'm still here. I'm still doing it. I'm still healing. Um, and both of those, for me, are really powerful. But, again, I think it's perfectly fine for yourself or anyone else to choose the language that defines you. you know. I mean, what happened to you should not define who you are. You needed to define who you are. And that is that is something that is gonna be ongoing and a very positive thing too. I think it's empowering to be able to define how you wanna be referred to.
0: Mm-hmm. That's all I had. Thank you so much for coming on with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Rachel,
1: I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm happy to talk with you again. Um, I'm really sorry what happened to you. And I hope that you get some support and you continue to heal. And um, feel free to reach out for a podcast or to chat or anything. Um, happy, happy to help you.
0: Thank you so much. You too. Thank you okay, so much. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good day. You too. Alrighty, everyone. This is your host, Rachel Franklin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Already Dead, a sexual assault discussion podcast. I hope you were able to take away something positive from our conversation today. Wishing you all the best. See you next time with another episode of Already Dead.